Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. I'm currently a sophomore at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden, and also co-hosts this podcast. And I'm his co-host, Jill Weinbanks. I'm also the author of The Watergate Girl and also the host of Hashtag Sisters-in-Law Podcast. Uh, in addition, I'm an MSNBC legal analyst and the wearer of Jill's pins, hashtag Jill's pins. And today's pin in honor of our special guest, New York Congressman Mondaire Jones, I am wearing a big apple that features inside of it the New York skyline. This year is going to be another defining year in American history. An ongoing pandemic continues to put a strain on our healthcare system, our economy, and our society in general. Holding those responsible for organizing, planning, and inciting the January 6th insurrection and other actions that were intended to overturn a free and fair election remain critical. Passing voting rights legislation this year is imperative, not just to protect our democracy, but because it would fulfill a promise that President Biden made to turn out a huge vote in the 2020 election. And on top of all of that, the midterm election is right around the corner, and the chasm between Democrats and Republicans is deeper than ever, and is preventing legislation and presidential appointments from being confirmed. Representative Mondaire Jones, our guest today, not only embodies what we all want in an elected official, but also represents the diversity that benefits Congress. In 2020, Representative Jones was elected to represent New York's 17th district to become one of only two openly gay black members of Congress. Representative Jones serves on the House Democratic Steering and Policy Committee, the House Judiciary Committee, the House Committee on Education and Labor, and the House Committee on Ethics. Prior to running for Congress, Representative Jones worked in the Department of Justice, Office of Legal Policy, as a litigator in private practice, as well as in the Westchester County Law Department and the Legal Aid Society. He is a graduate of Stanford and Harvard Law School. We're delighted to have him on. Thank you so much, Representative Jones, for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. It's definitely our pleasure. And we want to start today by talking about January 6th, which was three days after you were sworn in. Um, so I want to talk to you about what was it like for you, a new member of Congress who barely knew your way around, to witness thousands of insurrectionists storming the U.S. Capitol? Well, you know, the American people, in some respects, saw more than I did. Uh, you mentioned thousands of people. I had refrained from watching television hmm. that morning and that afternoon. Uh, and so by the time I became aware of uh, the severe threats posed by that very large crowd outside that people saw on television was when it was nearly too late. Mm. I was on the House floor, seated alongside the rest of the House Democratic leadership team, listening, frankly, to absurd allegations by my Republican colleagues of mass voter fraud that, of course, no one can ever substantiate, but alleged very loosely anyway, um, when someone from the security personnel uh, came up to the podium where the speaker usually is presiding and announced that the Capitol had been breached and that the same people who had breached the Capitol were on their way towards where we were uh, in the House chamber uh, and that we would need to lock down 
meaning the doors would be locked from the inside of the chamber. Uh, we were also instructed to uh, look underneath our seats to withdraw or retrieve uh, gas masks in the event that tear gas needed to be used. Uh, and we were also advised to prepare to lie down on the ground in the event of gunfire. Uh, so a frenzy ensued, to say the least, uh, and it was one of those situations where I think for the first time in my life, my life flashed before my eyes. I'm terrified just listening to your description of that. I mean, I can't even imagine. Um, did you notice any difference between the reaction of Democrats and Republicans? Did the Republicans sort of feel like those are my people, they aren't going to hurt me? Um, or was there just everybody was terrified? You know, I, I, I didn't pay too much attention to the, the other side of the chamber. I was, I was so focused on, uh, you know, getting the resources that I needed to get, uh, which were few and far between for that matter. Uh, I mean, there were about, you know, by my count, maybe five people in the house chamber to protect, uh, what I learned was about 200 of us, uh, in terms of members of Congress, both on the floor and famously in the gallery uh, above us. Uh, and, and of course, there's been reporting about, you know, tweets and, and uh, live streaming by my Republican colleagues. Uh, so I suspect that at least a few of them were not as fearful, if at all, uh, as the rest of us were. Oh, wow. And, and then, of course, that was followed very soon after that with your having to vote on the articles of impeachment against the still President Trump for incitement of that very insurrection, which I assume by then you had seen on television and knew more about the full scope of the danger you were actually in. And to me, witnessing the events live, as I did, um, and viewing it on television, and reviewing the facts that came out right after that, and that still are coming out through the January 6th committee, um, it seems to me that it's... It, it would have been almost unbelievable that there wouldn't be a bipartisan vote for impeachment. But of course, sadly, politics reared its ugly head, and uh, only 10 Republicans joined the House Democrats, and only seven Republican senators voted to find uh, the former president guilty, while well, he was still the president, to, to find then-President Trump guilty. Uh, so he wasn't convicted. And you did vote, of course, for um, impeachment. And can you just give a very brief summary of the top couple of reasons why you felt that that was the right vote? That was the first big floor speech that I gave uh, just days after being sworn in on Sunday, January 3rd. And I did not think it would be to impeach now the former president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. Uh, but, but these are unprecedented times. Uh, and I was one of the first folks uh, to call for his impeachment, if not the first person, you know, as we had, uh, were, were in a more secure location, having made it in the nick of time through the tunnels uh, of the Capitol uh, to that more secure location, uh, my fear turned to anger. Uh, it was obvious to everyone. Uh, including folks who are on right-wing TV denying the role that Donald Trump played today in inciting that violent insurrection at the Capitol. Uh, 
uh, that it was the president of the United States' words and deeds that most directly led to uh, the death of several people, uh, including uh, the physical harm and, and psychological injuries suffered by uh, countless more people, uh, whether it's the Capitol Police or other members of Congress. Uh, so, so there was his direct role in that. Uh, obviously, he deliberately took several hours to call off uh, his supporters and only after much intensive urging from uh, some people in his orbit uh, and uh, folks uh, in Congress even, who again today are denying the role he played today. Uh, but it, it is just abundantly clear that he incited violence against members of Congress, including his own vice president, Mike Pence, and moreover, that it was a betrayal of his solemn oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States, which uh, critically uh, relies on the peaceful transfer of power, which he directly was trying to to disrupt that day uh, during that certification. And and for a few hours, he was successful. uh, But thankfully, democracy prevailed in the hours since. Uh, and despite the fact that two thirds of my House Republican colleagues did not vote to certify that free and fair 2020 presidential election, uh, we still we still overwhelmingly did in the House and in the Senate. And thank heavens for that. Um, I wonder, going to that point, whether you think that many of those Republicans who didn't vote to impeach um, now are regretting that and the power that they have given him to control and remain head of the GOP. Do you think there's any private regret, even though they are afraid to say it publicly? I think there were several members on the Republican side who, even as they voted, regretted that they were doing so. Do you have any insight into what would have motivated actions that were contrary to the facts and to the upholding of democracy? Well, there's been public reporting uh, from folks like my Republican colleague, Peter Meyer, uh, and it is plausible, uh, given common sense and what many people, I think, are observing about the dynamics of today's Republican Party, uh, that... Uh, that Donald Trump plays a very powerful, coercive role in getting uh, Republicans in elected office to bend to his will uh, when faced with the alternative of losing in a Republican primary to a candidate of his choosing. Mm. And unfortunately, there are still too many Republicans in Congress today. I would say most over, uh, overwhelmingly, uh, the, the House Republican Caucus and, and the Senate Republican Caucus, uh, of, of who prioritize their own reelection over the, the fate of our democracy. Because if that were not true, we would have gotten... 10 Republican senators to vote for a bipartisan commission to simply investigate the events of January 6th. 
Uh, and and today we would not have, uh, and this is not just Donald Trump. There's something more sinister going on, even in his absence. But but you know if that were not true, if if re- if my Republican colleagues in the House and in the Senate uh, were willing to put country before party and their own reelection, uh, they would also be supportive of common sense, previously non-controversial voting rights legislation like the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the Freedom to Vote Act. Uh, and, and of course, we know this to be true because in 2006, the Voting Rights Act was reauthorized unanimously in the Senate by a vote of 98 to zero and nearly unanimously in the House. And today, not a single person, not a single person on the Republican side in all of Congress voted for the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. It's, it's unbelievable and terrifying to hear those statistics, but it is true. And... Uh, you know, again, I, I just think if they would have impeached, they would have deprived him of this power. But I, I want to ask something sort of controversial, which is I don't think Donald Trump is smart enough politically, or maybe in any other way, but certainly politically, to be doing this strategy to control the Republican Party on his own. So who are the ones really behind him? And And I would also note that there is a group now formed of former Trump top officials who are trying to make sure that he never can run again. Um, So there are some people behind the scenes willing to come out and say, uh, but most of them are not elected politicians. They're people like his former um, press officer or communications director, uh, not people who are elected to office. So who's behind this strategy politically? The fact is that the base of the Republican Party was already sympathetic to the ideas set forth by a figure like Donald Trump uh, before his election in 2016. There is a recognition among Republican leaders Uh, including all of those in elected office in Congress, that uh, there will continue to be an appetite for the extremism, um, the race baiting, uh, the, the resentment of a diversifying America, uh, even were Donald Trump not to exist tomorrow. Uh, And it's why you see, rather than a lot of folks leave the party, which some Republicans have, Mm -hmm. uh, a general embrace or submission in some instances to the way from their perspective that things are, uh, the base that they have to work with. Uh, And so I would argue that Uh, Donald Trump doesn't just uh, appear and uh, obtain leverage over the Republican Party and and even lead the Republican Party in a vacuum, Uh, that that anyone who refuses to disavow his ideology and his tactics is a co-conspirator, is complicit. Uh, And it's why I'm only so celebratory (laughs) of... Uh, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, 
who, you know, I think genuinely resent Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think their resentment comes from a bourgeois place uh, of not wanting people in the party to say the quiet part out loud. But it's why they also voted against the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which people like Mark Elias and myself have been pointing out frequently over the past several months. I think you said a word that so accurately describes where we are now. It's just sinister. And, you know, this past weekend we saw Senator Rounds go on ABC News who um, spoke truth and Donald Trump came out afterward and said he's never going to endorse, I think he used the word jerk um, ever again. Um, but we just want to go into, you know, shortly after the insurrection, you and Representative Ted Lieu wrote a letter to the Attorney Grievance Committee of the New York State Supreme Court Appellate Division requesting that um, Rudy Giuliani be, be disbarred. Um, thankfully, he has now been disbarred. I'm wondering if you can tell our audience first about Rudy Giuliani's role before um, and both on January 6th, um, what compelled you to write that letter and whether your letter was instrumental in that outcome of disbarment? Well, I'd like to think that it was. Uh, Rudy Giuliani played a substantial role in uh, the incitement of that violent insurrection. He uh, was one of the most visible proponents of the big lie Uh, And, of course, he has also been uh, shown to and publicly reported to have uh, made visits abroad uh, to uh, conspire with uh, really enemies of the United States government uh, to subvert the 2020 presidential election. Uh, If there's anything that a... uh, person could do to to undermine the integrity of the 2020 election, it was attempted by Rudy Giuliani. Uh, And he didn't do so covertly, frankly. He was kind of an imbecile about it, but, um, and which is how it it came to be uncovered um, and and so widely reported, uh, and in some instances even admitted to by by him uh, and and, and certainly corroborated uh, by folks internationally. Uh, and that is a a complete swearing off of, of the duty of uh, a, a member of the bar, which is first and foremost to uphold the Constitution of the United States, uh, and in the case of New York, also in uh, the, the Constitution of the state of New York. Uh, and so Ted Lieu and I uh, wrote a letter to uh, the, the relevant entity, the appellate division in New York, uh, uh, which, you know, has the ability to, to take away someone's uh, license to practice in the state. Uh, and I think uh, through the obviously direct application that we made uh, and also through the publicity that our work generated, uh, got the kind of attention to this issue that resulted in Rudy Giuliani no, no longer being able to practice in the state of New York. You know, as we said, Rudy Giuliani, being disbarred in New York is a good thing for all of us in our democracy. But there are other lawyers that were involved um, in the planning of the insurrection, Jenna Ellis, Sidney Powell, you know, Bill Barr, Eastman, Clark. Um, do you think that similar um, action should be taken against those lawyers as well? They should. Uh, so as an initial matter, any member of the bar will tell you that uh, you have an obligation to make representations in a court of law that are in good faith and on information and belief. Uh, And what we have seen is a complete 
abdication of that solemn responsibility. By the way, there's also great institutional damage, great reputational damage to the legal profession uh, and to the legal system uh, that is experienced when people openly lie in the courtroom and are allowed to continue doing so and have thriving legal practices. <laughs> um, but, but also, it goes back to the issue of the Constitution and that solemn responsibility to uphold the Constitution. And it is on its face incongruous for an attorney or, in the case of Donald Trump's uh, advocates, a number of attorneys to be actively seeking to overturn a free and fair presidential election without any basis in fact or law. Uh, And the result, of course, is that the Constitution uh, would itself uh, be undermined were there not to be a peaceful transfer of power, where the people who won the electoral college vote not to take office as the president and vice president of the United States. Um, so, so there must be accountability. Uh, and, and that continues to be a theme, uh, whether, not just in terms of what the legal profession should do and how it ought to treat pe- people like Sidney Powell, but in how the Department of Justice decides to prosecute people at the highest levels. Uh, with respect to the role that they played on January 6th. You know, I um, think because this is an intergenerational podcast, um, you know, I hope there is, this year is the year of accountability, but also, um, you know, doing so, I think would send a message to my generation, hopefully rising lawyers, that, you know, you have to follow ethics and, and rules and defend democracy if you're going to become a lawyer. So um, hopefully this, this is a message to them as well. But I know Jill has a question on um, John Dean and future ethics um, around lawyers. Well, sort of following up on both what what both of you are saying, um, I go back to the era of Watergate, and right after that, um, the ABA um, took action to change our ethics rules because, as John Dean points out, there were so many lawyers involved in Watergate that it really was a bad look for the legal profession and the rule of law and justice. And and it seems to me that, although I haven't done a full count, that the number of lawyers involved in what I'll call Trumpgate may exceed that of Watergate. And it seems to me that, you know, with that many lawyers involved and the legal profession being questioned for their honesty and integrity, Somebody has to do something, and I'm not sure whether it's more ethics rules or whether different states should be looking at disparaging all of the lawyers involved um, who submitted pleadings in court that were false and that they knew were false. Um, so tell me what you think and, and you know about ethics and what Congress can do as well as what state bar associations can do. Well, and, and of course, a number of those attorneys have been sanctioned by judges yes. presiding in, in a number of these cases. Uh, but, but we must go further than that. These people should not be allowed to practice law again because it's not, 
just one instance in which they, they made knowingly false representations and pleadings, which, of course, are submitted under penalty of perjury. You know, when you, you know, litigators know that when you, when you make a filing with a court, you typically have to sign <laughs> that filing uh, and, and risk being sanctioned or, or criminally prosecuted even uh, when it is determined, if and when it is determined, that those represent, representations you made were, were, were knowingly false representations. Uh, and of course, the, the rule of law itself is undermined because when a layperson or another attorney sees uh, attorneys getting away with, with lying to a court, uh, it, it gives the impression that the rule of law is, is not quite solid, is, is not quite something that ought to or needs to be obeyed, that you can, you can break the law, in fact, without consequence. Uh, and we know that strong democracies or democracies generally cannot survive without the rule of law. Uh, and so Congress has to be taking a look at this. I think, uh, I think the best approach really is for these individuals to be disbarred. That will send a message loud and clear. Uh, and, uh, but, but Congress also, I think, should take a very close look at uh, potentially uh, other avenues to hold accountable individuals who make false representations to a court. And I would hope that you might take a look at false representations by members of your own body to the American public, which have had dramatic uh, consequences. But one other follow-up to what both you and Victor were saying, um, and that is the Department of Justice's role. In addition to Congress having a role in uncovering these facts and letting the public know about it, accountability in a different way in courts of law can only come from the Department of Justice or from the states. And, um, you know, there's this talk that DOJ might be waiting for the January 6th committee to make a referral, which to me is an absurd idea because the Department of Justice has its own jurisdiction and can act on its own. But so I'm asking you both as a lawyer um, and a member of Congress, what do you think about Attorney General Garland's remarks last week um, when he clearly said that they were going to go as high as needed to be gone based on the facts? But he didn't make it clear enough to me that it wasn't just for the conduct of January 6th itself, but for all of the other activities that the Trump people undertook to interfere with the election, to overturn the clear results of a free and fair election. Uh, or, for that matter, the nefarious criminal conduct that occurred uh, separate and apart from the events surrounding the January 6th right. uh, attempted overthrow of the federal government, uh, they're, they're, the record is replete with, um, uh, with, with, with facts uh, pertaining to uh, you know, violation of the emoluments clause in the Constitution uh, and, and so much other criminal conduct. Uh, by the former president of the United States in his four years uh, in office, uh, to say nothing of uh, the criminal conduct of, of his children and, and other people in his orbit. Uh, 
so I have been overall disappointed with the attorney general, uh, both at, at the speed, at both with, with the speed to which he uh, has made some of these pronouncements. Uh, and in what I suspect really is uh, the lack of an investigation into uh, misconduct at the highest levels. I appreciate uh, his statement last week that he is willing to uh, go that far. But the thing about it, and, and this has been echoed by uh, other legal pundits, is when, when you're conducting that high level of an investigation, that sprawling of an investigation, which is what January 6th requires, uh, I think it's what justice requires, it's hard to, to keep that scale of an investigation um, secret, right? I mean, we, we would have heard about subpoenas and, um, and, and witness interviews um, and, and potential grand jury testimony, uh, and, and we've just not heard any of that. And, and that, that coupled with some statements that uh, Attorney General Garland has made uh, cautioning against uh, you know, violating the political norm where uh, the Justice Department and uh, in, an in, in administration of a different party uh, doesn't go after the, the, the former uh, the, the former president uh, gives me great concern because, of course, the, the, the fallacy in, in, in that in that concern that he expressed is that if you are never going to investigate an individual simply because he or she was the leader of the federal government and belonged to a different party, then that means that presidents really are above the law. And I think that is far more damaging to the rule of law, far more damaging to uh, in any democratic norms uh, that we may still hold dear in this country uh, than whatever the heck he's talking about. Well, I... I can't think of a better way to end the show than with what you've just said. Um, and I'm, we have pages more of questions for you. So <laughs> I hope you'll agree to come back with us, but I want to be respectful of the time frame you set for us and to just thank you for having answered our questions and ask you to come back again to go through the several pages of questions we still have left. And I know more will come up as... Um, the facts develop. So thank Absolutely. you, Congressman. I, I can't wait to join you again. Thank you. Thanks so much, Representative Jones. This is great. Victor, I totally loved talking to Congressman Mondaire Jones. He was outstanding in really answering the questions that were asked. And unfortunately, we did definitely run out of time. And I want to have him back to talk about how Congress will enforce their own subpoenas, passing legislation to make it clearer how they can enforce it, how they can set consequences for violating the Emoluments Clause, how they can set a way to implement the 14th Amendment, Section 3, that says no one who has taken an oath of office, an oath to the United States of America, can serve if that person violates that oath by engaging in an insurrection against the government, which clearly Donald Trump, in my mind, has done. Um, and I would point out there is a group of Republican, well, of his former top-level staff who are working 
to try to find a way to make sure he never runs for office again. So there's a lot of things I want to have him back to talk about. What about you? Oh, for sure. I mean, we have in our plan question list, we had him talking about, you know, his time in Congress, um, passing laws. I mean, he's really hit the ground running. Um, he's also historic because, as we mentioned in the introduction, he's one of two openly uh, gay black members of Congress. I'm asking him about that. But, um, you know, I think one of the most disturbing parts of the interview that he gave was just his recount of him being in Congress um, three days after being sworn in during the insurrection. He talked about, you know, being, uh, having to navigate the halls of Congress, you know, having to figure out whether or not he needed to get gas masks on because of, um, you know, what the protesters were going to do to him. I mean, it was a horrifying scene. And then during that moment, I also thought of his staffers because his staffers were also brand new yeah. to Congress. And I can only imagine what that must have felt like for them, because, you know, if it were me, I probably couldn't find the bathroom 30 days into being in Congress. So, I mean, it's <laughs> it's truly, I, I think, listening to him talk about that hopefully will tell our audience just the severity of January 6th and um, yeah. the danger to members of Congress and their staff and everyone in that building on that day. So, I think, you know, Touching on what you just said, we need to have him back to talk about all of that, to talk about his time in Congress, his, you know, trailblazing um, efforts as, you know, a gay black member of Congress and so much more. But he was a phenomenal guest, and I hope that we can have him back sometime. And um, we'll also have on hopefully some of those Republicans you talked about who are trying to resist Donald Trump's running in 2024. Yes, we will definitely get some of them to be guests on the show. And of course, I can easily see you as a congressional staffer uh, in a few years or as a member of Congress in a few years after that. And I, I also was, I mean, the hair was standing up on my mm -hmm. arms mm -hmm. as I was listening to him saying, well, I wasn't watching television, so yeah. you knew more than I did until we were told that we might have to lie on the ground to avoid bullets mm -hmm. and that we mm -hmm. needed to know where our gas mask was in case they had to use uh, dispersed gas yeah. to disperse yeah. the crowd. That really put me in the place. He was very good at yeah. creating a picture so vivid. that was terrifying, yeah. very vivid, yeah. very vivid. So... Uh, I hope everyone enjoyed this episode as much as we did and that they will um, subscribe so they never miss an episode of iGen Politics and give us a good rating so other people can find our podcast and that they'll even tweet and post on social media about how much they enjoyed it so that we can get more listeners or viewers because we also do this on um, YouTube as well as on wherever you get your podcasts. And Apple Podcasts, of course, is a good place, but I am an well, I represent the other end of the intergenerational spectrum, and I still use an Android. So I don't use Apple Podcasts. I use Spotify. But uh, there are many places to get your podcasts. So hopefully everyone will join us and enjoy this one as much as we did. Thank you for being with us. Thanks so much. 